Section 31 of the Underground Railroad, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry. The Underground Railroad, Part 3, by William Still. Section 31. Arrival from Hartford County, 1857. John Myers. John fled from under the yoke of Dr. Joshua R. Nelson until within two years of Jack's flight, the doctor had been a very fine man, with whom Jack found no fault. But suddenly his mode of treatment changed. He became very severe. Nothing that Jack could do met the approval of the doctor. Jack was constantly looked upon with suspicion. The very day that Jack fled, four men approached him, the doctor one of them with line in hand. That sign was well understood, and Jack resolved that they should not get within tying distance of him. I dodged them, said Jack. Never afterwards was Jack seen in that part of the country, at least as long as a fetter remained. The day that he dodged, he also took the Underground Railroad, and although ignorant of letters, he battled his way out of Maryland, and succeeded in reaching Pennsylvania and the committee. He was obliged to leave four children behind, John, Abraham, Jane, and Ellen. Jack's wife had been freed and had come to Philadelphia two years in advance of him. His master evidently supposed that Jack would be mean enough to wish to see his wife, even in a free state, and that no slave with such an unnatural desire could be tolerated or trusted, that the sooner such articles were turned into cash, the better. This, in substance, was the way Jack accounted for the sudden change which had come over his master. In defense of his course, Jack referred to the treatment which he had received while in servitude under his old master in something like the following words. I served under my young master's father thirty-five years, and from him received kind treatment. I was his head man on the place, and had everything to look after. Arrival from Maryland, 1857. William Lee, Susan Jane Boyle, and Amarian Lucretia Rister. Although these three passengers arrived in Philadelphia at the same time, they did not come from Maryland together. William Lee found himself under the yoke on a farm in the possession of Zachariah Merica, who, William said, was a, quote, low, ignorant man, not above a common woodchopper, and owned no other slave property than William. End quote. Against him, however, William brought no accusation of any very severe treatment. On the contrary, his master talked sometimes quote, as though he wanted to be good and get religion, but said he could not while he was trying to be rich. End quote. Everything looked hopeless in William's eyes, so far as the master's riches and his own freedom were concerned. He concluded that he would leave him the bag to hold alone. William, therefore, laid down the shovel and the hoe, and without saying a word to his master, he took his departure under the privacy of night for Canada. William represented the white and colored races about equally. He was about twenty-seven years of age, and looked well fitted for a full day's work on a farm. Susan Jane came from Newmarket, near Georgetown Crossroads, where she had been held to unrequited labor by Hezekiah Maston, a farmer. 
although he was a man of fair pretensions and a member of the methodist church he knew how to draw the cords very tightly with regard to his slaves keeping his feet on their necks to their sore grievance susan endured his bad treatment as long as she could then left destitute and alone her mother and father were at the time living in elkton maryland whether they ever heard what became of their daughter is not known Amarian was twenty-one years of age, a person of light color, medium size, with a prepossessing countenance, and smart. She could read, write, and play on the piano. From a child, Amarian had been owned by Mrs. Elizabeth Key Scott, who resided near Braceville, but at the time of her flight she was living at Westminster in the family of a man named Boyle, said to be the clerk of the court. In reference to treatment, Amarian said, I have always been used very well, have had it good all my life, etc. This was a remarkable case, and at first somewhat staggered the faith of the committee, but they could not dispute her testimony, consequently they gave her the benefit of the doubt. She spoke of having a mother living in Hagerstown by the name of Amarian Ballard, also three sisters who were slaves and two who were free. She also had a brother in chains in Mississippi. Arrival from Norfolk, Virginia, 1857. William Carney and Andrew Allen. William was about 51 years of age, a man of unmixed blood. Physically, he was a superior man, and his mental abilities were quite above average for his class. He belonged to the estate of the late Mrs. Sarah Twine, who bore the reputation of being a lady of wealth and owned 112 slaves. Most of her slave property was kept on her plantation not far from Old Point Comfort. According to William's testimony, of times Mrs. Twine would meddle too freely with the cup, and when under its influence she was very desperate, and acted as though she wanted to kill some of the slaves. After the evil spirit left her and she had regained her wonted composure, she would pretend that she loved her negroes, and would make a great fuss over them. Not infrequently, she would have very serious difficulty with her overseers. Having license to do as they pleased, they would, of course, carry their cruelties to the most extreme verge of punishment. If a slave was maimed or killed under their correction, it was no loss of theirs. One of the overseers by the name of Bill Anderson once shot a young slave man called Luke and wounded him so seriously that he was not expected to live. At another time, one of the overseers beat and kicked a slave to death. This barbarity caused the mistress to be very much stirred up, and she declared that she would not have any more white overseers, condemned them for everything, and decided to change her policy in future, and to appoint her overseers from her own slaves, setting the property to watch the property. This system was organized, and times were somewhat better. William had been hired out almost his entire life. For the last twelve to fifteen years he had been accustomed to hire his time for one hundred and thirty dollars per annum. In order to meet this demand he commonly resorted to oystering. By the hardest toil he managed to maintain himself and family in a humble way. For the last twenty years, prior to his escape, the slaves had constantly been encouraged by their mistress's promise to believe that at her death all would be free, 
and transported to Liberia, where they would enjoy their liberty and be happy the remainder of their days. With full faith in her promises year by year, the slaves awaited her demise with as much patience as possible, and often prayed that her time might be shortened for the general good of the oppressed. Fortunately, as the slaves thought, she had no children or near relatives to deprive them of their just and promised rights. In November, previous to William's escape, her long-looked-for dissolution took place. Every bondman who was old enough to realize the nature and import of the change felt a great anxiety to learn what the will of their old mistress said, whether she had actually freed them or not. Alas! When the secret was disclosed, it was ascertained that not a fetter was broken, not a bond unloosed, and that no provision whatever had been made looking towards freedom. In this sad case, the slaves could imagine no other fate than soon to be torn asunder and scattered. The fact was soon made known that the high sheriff had administered on the estate of the late mistress. It was therefore obvious enough to William and the more intelligent slaves that the auction block was near at hand. The trader, the slave pen, the auction block, the coffle gang, the rice swamp, the cotton plantation, bloodhounds, the cruel overseers loomed up before him as they had never done before. Without stopping to consider the danger, he immediately made up his mind that he would make a struggle, cost what it might. He knew of no other way to escape than the Underground Railroad. He was shrewd enough to find an agent who gave him private instructions, and to whom he indicated the desire to travel north on said road. On examination he was deemed reliable, and a mutual understanding was entered into between William and one of the accommodating captains running on the Richmond and Philadelphia line, to the effect that he, William, should have a first-class underground railroad berth so perfectly private that even the law officers could not find him the first ties to be severed were those which bound him to his wife and children and next to the baptist church to which he belonged his family were slaves and bore the following names his wife nancy and children simon henry william sarah marianne elizabeth lewis and cornelius it was no light matter to bid them farewell forever. The separation from them was a trial such as rarely falls to the lot of mortals. But he nerved himself for the undertaking, and when the hour arrived, his strength was sufficient for the occasion. Thus, in company with Andrew, they embarked for an unknown shore. Their entire interests entrusted to a stranger, who was to bring them through difficulties and dangers, seen and unseen. Andrew was about twenty-four years of age, very tall, quite black, and bore himself manfully. He, too, was of the same estate that William belonged to. He had served on the farm as a common farm laborer. He had it, sometimes rough and sometimes smooth, to use his own language. The fear of what awaited the slaves prompted Andrew to escape. He, too, was entangled with a wife and one child, with whom he parted only as a friend parts with a companion when death separates them. Catherine was the name of Andrew's wife, and Anna Clarissa the name of his child left in chains. End of section 31
Arrival from Hartford County, 1857. John Myers.